The United Auto Workers and the Detroit automakers have just hours to reach tentative deals before the union begin targeted strikes. General Motors today has upped its wage increase offer in an effort to stave off the strikes. Our story is coming up on this Thursday, September 14th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Ukraine is waging a big military offensive against Russia, but is making limited progress, and that raises a difficult question. When this offensive reaches its limits, which it will probably do in a couple of months when it gets muddy, what do we do then? Hunter Biden has been indicted on felony gun charges weeks after a plea deal struck between President Biden's son and prosecutors fell apart. And the Red Sox are parting ways with their chief baseball officer, Chaim Bloom. It's 4.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, is being criminally charged. NPR's Windsor Johnston says the indictment filed in U.S. District Court in Delaware means the case could go to trial in the middle of President Biden's re-election campaign. Federal prosecutors have indicted Hunter Biden on three criminal counts related to his possession of a firearm. The indictment comes after a plea deal fell apart in July between federal prosecutors and Hunter Biden's attorneys over taxes and a diversion agreement on the firearms charge. It also comes two days after House Republicans opened an impeachment inquiry into President Biden stemming from his son's business dealings. NPR's Windsor Johnston divisions within the Republican conference reportedly resurfaced behind closed doors today. Disagreements over demands to avert a government shutdown boiled over as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy reportedly dared hard right members of the conference to try to oust him. He later told reporters threats don't matter. I'm going to continue to just to focus on what's the right thing to do for the American people. And you know what? If it takes a fight, I'll have a fight. Not just a chant, but a warning from members of the United Auto Workers Union outside a Dearborn, Michigan truck plant. They, tens of thousands of their colleagues, including bargaining rep Kane Max, getting ready to go on strike against Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis if no deal is reached before midnight tonight. They've all been uh, talked to. They know what their assignments are. They know what gate they will be at, and they're ready to go. The UAW says the strike for higher pay, a four-day work week, and better protections could start at a small number of locations and expand. A prolonged standoff could lead to major disruptions among the big three automakers. It's also a test for President Biden, who has long described himself as strongly pro-union. The new COVID-19 vaccines have started arriving at pharmacies across the United States. NPR's Rob Stein has details. CVS says the new shots are already available at more than 2,000 of that company's pharmacies and should be in stock at the rest by the end of the week. Other pharmacies, like Walgreens, say they're expecting to have appointments available for the new shots by next week. The new COVID vaccines target a more recent strain of Omicron than the last shots, so doctors think they'll boost people's fading immunity and help protect them from getting COVID, spreading the virus, and getting so sick they'll end up in the hospital or die. The shots could also reduce the risk for long COVID. The shots are available to anyone aged six months and older. Rob Stein. NPR News. U.S. stocks have ended the day higher. The Dow closed up 331 points, nearly 1% to settle at 34,907. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Cape Cod and the islands and the Gloucester area are expected to bear the brunt of the impact of Hurricane Lee, which is well offshore still but working its way up the coastline. National Weather Service meteorologist Frank Nasera says at its closest, the storm is expected to be about 100 to 150 miles east of Cape Cod. The strongest winds and rainfall will occur Friday night into Saturday. Strongest winds across Cape Cod and Nantucket and maybe even the Cape Ann area of 50 to 60 miles per hour. Nasera says that could lead to power outages. He says there could also be some minor beach erosion. In Gloucester, Fire Chief Eric Smith is urging residents to get ready. The loss of electricity, you got to be prepared for. You know, charge up everything you can charge. If you got backup batteries, charge those. Uh, if you have generators, you should know how to operate them, have fuel for them. Smith says boat owners need to secure their vessels or pull them out of the water entirely. A new study finds fewer high school graduates in Massachusetts are enrolling in state colleges and universities. The report by the Hildreth Institute finds that in the year 2016, 73% of high schoolers in the state immediately enrolled in college after they graduated. It dropped to 63% after the 2021, 20, uh, 20, uh, and 21 academic year. One of the researchers says high school graduates fear that going to college is so expensive and burdensome that they'd have to borrow extensively to pay for it and wonder if it's worth the risk. Red Sox this afternoon fire Chief Baseball Officer Haim Bloom. Red Sox principal owner John Henry says the move signals a new direction for the club. Sox have finished last in the American League East twice since Bloom was hired in 2019. They are now tied with the Yankees for last place in the division this season. In the forecast, 76 degrees, so nice out there right now. Blue skies and sunshine, not too humid. Tonight, clouds on the increase. Tomorrow, clouds and some sunshine. Daytime highs about 70. The rain from Hurricane Lee off the coast should start tomorrow night and continue through the day. On Saturday, we could have wind gusts of somewhere around 45 miles an hour, a pounding surf as well, especially on Cape Ann and Cape Cod. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In a moment, we'll hear NASA's latest plan on how to contribute to the science of UFOs. But first, President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, has been indicted on felony gun charges. This comes weeks after a plea deal with prosecutors fell apart. The charges possibly set the stage for yet another high-profile criminal trial in the middle of the 2024 election. Joining us now to discuss these developments is NPR reporter Jimena Bustillo. Hey, Jimena. Hey there. Okay, first, what exactly is Hunter Biden being charged with today? Well, he's being charged with making knowingly false written claims that he was not an unlawful user or addicted to any stimulant, narcotic drug, or other controlled substance, and lying to federal to a federally licensed gun dealer when purchasing a firearm. There's another charge for illegal possession of a firearm, and this is connected with a gun he purchased in 2018. Earlier this summer, Biden had agreed to enter a plea deal that would have allowed him to avoid prosecution on these gun charges. Mm-hmm. Separately, as a part of the plea deal, he agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor offenses related to his filing of federal income taxes. Okay, and then remind us what happened to that plea deal. 
Well, the plea deal fell apart, which is how we got here today. Last month, a federal judge in Delaware questioned the terms of the deal, specifically whether it conveyed a kind of broad immunity to Hunter Biden over his business dealings and foreign lobbying. So prosecutors said no, and lawyers for Hunter Biden said yes, and there was no meeting of the minds. Prosecutors then said that the two sides remained at an impasse and that there was no plea deal. David Weiss, the special counsel in this case, has been investigating the president's son since 2019, when he was appointed by then-President Trump as U.S. attorney from Delaware. Merrick Garland, the current attorney general, named him special counsel in August. The difference now is that as special counsel, he will write a report explaining his decisions about charging people or declining to charge people, and he's going to operate outside of the day-to-day supervision from the Justice Department leaders. But they can override his decision if they think that they're inappropriate. Right. Okay, so what kind of reaction are you seeing so far to all of this? Well, so far, a little bit. The White House is declining to comment. They referred reporters to the Justice Department and Hunter Biden's personal legal representatives and noted that this is an independent investigation. Meanwhile, Hunter Biden's legal representative has not responded to an immediate request for comment. Meanwhile, former President Trump took to his social media platform, Truth Social, to argue Democrats opened what he called a proverbial Pandora's box, though he himself notes that these charges don't implicate the sitting president. Well, let me ask you this, Jimena, because all of this is coming the same week that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Mm -hmm. How much are these two things connected? Well, they're not directly connected. That's the thing. House Republicans have long maintained that Hunter Biden benefited from foreign companies because of his father. And they alleged this week in that inquiry that the president lied to what they say the American people about his own knowledge of his family's foreign business dealings. However, it's important to note that Republicans have not proven any connection between Hunter Biden's business dealings and President Biden. Devin Archer, a former business associate of Hunter Biden, Biden's did tell a House committee recently that then-President Biden sent greetings when Hunter hosted conference calls with clients and stopped by briefly at business dinners. But Archer conceded that he did not have any evidence that he received any direct financial benefit as a result of these interactions. Although unrelated, these charges do have political implications. Any Hunter-Biden trial is likely to be in the middle of an election campaign where his father is hoping to get reelected, and they give Republicans something to point to as you know they see their own stand standard bearer Donald Trump is facing his own legal troubles and trials during the campaign. That is NPR's Jimena Bustillo. Thank you, Jimena. Thank you. Automakers and the auto workers union have just hours left to reach a deal before the union plans to begin targeted strikes. We do know auto workers are getting sizable raises. We still don't know how much. And the fate of some of the other union demands is still up in the air. NPR's Camila Dominoski is in Detroit. She joins us now from there. Hey there, Camila. Hi, Mary Louise. Hey, uh, first off, tell me exactly where you are in Detroit. Yeah, I'm at the Detroit Auto Show right now. You might be able to hear some electric vehicles whipping around on an indoor track in here. Okay. This show this year has been completely overshadowed by these talks that are happening. You know, you have executives who've been trying to talk about these new vehicles coming out, and all the reporters here just keep asking them about these union talks. Yeah, okay. And so where do the union talks stand with the clocks ticking away? 
Tick-tock, tick-tock. So midnight is the deadline. GM and Ford say that they have put offers on the table on pan benefits that the companies call historic. I'm waiting to hear back from Stellantis. The union says that these offers are simply not good enough given the huge profits that companies have been making lately and the big pay hikes that they gave their CEOs. Um, on the company side, last night here at the show, Jim Farley, he's the CEO of Ford, and he expressed frustration with what he saw as the union not responding to the company's offers. Here's what he said. We still have time left. We have time left, but it's hard to negotiate when you don't get any feedback back. And you know, there's not much time left, right? Ford sources today said they were expecting talks to be sort of fast and furious, if you'll forgive a car pun, flying back and forth <laughs> offers today, but they just haven't been that busy. I should note, the union previously accused the companies of stalling for weeks on sort of getting to the nitty gritty. So there's frustration on both sides. Okay, frustration on both sides, but on the substance, do we know how far apart they remain? Yeah, automakers have moved on wages. They're now offering 20% increases, we saw from GM and Ford. And the companies have put cost of living protections that are tied to inflation on the table. That's really a big win for the union. Lots of people thought they weren't going to be able to get that. Uh, newer hires will also be able to get maximum pay a lot faster under the company proposals at this point. But Mary Louise, there are some things that the union used to have, things the union would really like to get back, things like pensions instead of 401ks, and pay for workers even if their plant is shut down. And on those things, the automakers are not budging at all. They say they're simply too expensive and they couldn't compete, and the union, meanwhile, says they're really important. Okay, so sounds like we may well be looking at a strike. What do we know about mm -hmm. what form that might take, what it'll look like? Yeah, UAW President Sean Payne says they could strike all three companies at once, like he said all along. That would be really unusual. At the same time, this is not going to be the mega strike that many people had sort of been bracing for. We're not going to see 150,000-ish members all walk out on Friday. The, the union is instead going to start with a few plants and then grow from there. That is odd. That's not how most strikes happen today. But historian Aline DeVault says it's actually a throwback to the 30s. It's sort of a variation on how they ran their first really huge strike against General Motors in 1937 when they started in one plant and then another plant would join and then another plant would join. And then another plant and then another plant. You know, companies also have strike plans. Ford has opened a line of credit. They've trained salaried workers to take shifts in plants that send out parts. They are bracing. All right, and it sounds like uh, just like those electric cars behind you, we're racing up against this deadline hours That's right, away. Midnight. Okay, ten o'clock there, and where you are in Detroit, is that right? No, no, ten o'clock. Uh, shortly before the deadline, they're going to announce where the strikes will happen. Uh, but at midnight, the strikes will kick off. And Pierre's Camila Dominowski at the Detroit Auto Show. Thanks, Camila. Thanks, Mary Louise. Unidentified flying objects, or UFOs, have recently gotten more attention from Congress and the Department of Defense, and now from NASA. Advisors to the space agency think it should play a, quote, prominent role in studying odd sightings. And as NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports, NASA has seized on that idea, appointing its first-ever chief of UFO research. 
For decades, NASA has looked for signs of alien life out in the planets and the moons of our solar system and beyond. But possible aliens closer to home, like UFOs? That hasn't really been NASA's thing. Bill Nelson wants to change that. He's the agency's administrator. We, NASA, have taken for the first time concrete action to seriously look into UAP. UAP is the preferred acronym these days for Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena. Last year, NASA brought together 16 outside experts, asking them to assess what unclassified data is available and how NASA could contribute. Now that group has issued a report. Nelson and other officials released its findings at a press briefing. The NASA independent study team did not find any evidence that UAP have an extraterrestrial origin. But we don't know what these UAP are. Most sightings are mundane objects, drones, weather balloons, but some are unexplained. Still, there's usually very limited information. The new report lays out a roadmap for how NASA can leverage its observing instruments and scientific expertise to help the government collect data and study it with more rigor, plus openness. Nelson said if NASA found evidence that a sighting was tied to a non-human intelligence. You bet your boots. Uh, we will say that. He announced that NASA has created a new position its first director of UAP research. But officials refuse to say who is filling that role. Dan Evans is with NASA's Science Mission Directorate. He says members of the UAP study team got harassed and threatened. That's in part why we are not splashing the name of our new director out there, uh, because science needs to be free. UFOs can inspire strong feelings. NASA officials say they hope more science will lead to less sensationalism. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. And you are listening to All Things Considered. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Birmingham, Alabama commemorates 60 years since the Ku Klux Klan bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church, killing four black girls. It was a watershed moment in civil rights. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 418. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Rhodes Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. The Dow rose nearly a full percent today for its best day since early August. S&P and NASDAQ were also up. Both gained about eight-tenths of a percent. Massachusetts ranks seventh in the nation for clean energy jobs. A report from the nation's business group, Environmental Entrepreneurs, says the state has just over 118,000 green jobs last year. That's up roughly 10,000 from 2020. Most were in the energy efficiency field, followed by renewable energy jobs and the jobs in the hybrid and electric vehicle industry. The report says more than 3% of all jobs in the state are in the clean energy sector. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Lyric Opera, presenting a startling new Madama Butterfly in an all-new production. Visit blo.org for more information. 
In the forecast, blue skies, sunshine out there, not as sticky as it has been tonight. Lots of clouds around. Tomorrow, clouds and some sunshine, highs about 70 degrees. The rain from Hurricane Lee off the coastline should start tomorrow night, continue into Saturday. We could have some wind gusts of about 45 miles an hour, and there's likely to be a pounding surf as well. Could be some beach erosion, especially on Cape Cod and Cape Ann. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. On a Thursday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Ukraine is waging its biggest military offensive yet in the war against Russia, but it's making only limited progress. This raises a difficult question. Should the U.S. and its allies provide Ukraine with even more powerful weapons or try to lay the groundwork for a negotiated settlement or both. NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie has our story. When Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is asked if he should negotiate with Russian leader Vladimir Putin, he's blunt. Here's what he recently told CNN. When you want to have compromises or dialogue with somebody, you can't do it with a liar. Zelensky and many Ukrainians are quick to note that Moscow has dominated or attempted to dominate Ukraine for generations. Their intent is to drive out all Russian troops, estimated at 200,000 or more, even if it means a protracted war. Yet the front lines on the battlefield today have changed only marginally this year, despite months of heavy fighting. When this offensive reaches its limits, which it will probably do in a couple of months when it gets muddy, what do we do then? Charles Kupchin is a former diplomat and national security official. He was part of a small, unofficial group that met quietly this year with Russian officials, including Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. He argues the U.S. approach should be two-pronged, bolster Ukraine's military, as it's doing, and also prepare for possible negotiations. Ukraine is suffering terrible loss of life. And as a consequence, uh, one has to ask, might Ukraine be better off trying to get a ceasefire and beginning the process of rebuilding? Yet the spotlight is currently on Ukraine's offensive in the south and east of the country. The Ukrainians have made some advances since launching it in June, a few miles here, a few miles there, but they haven't achieved a major breakthrough. Ben Hodges is a former U.S. Army general who helped train Ukrainian forces. He says the Ukrainians are inflicting damage on Russian forces behind the front lines, something that gets only limited attention. I mean, every time a train is stopped or a, a truck is uh, destroyed or a bridge is taken out, that makes it that much harder to resupply uh, Russian troops and Russian artillery. And so the Ukrainian counteroffensive is putting enormous pressure 
on the Russians. He favors additional weapons for Ukraine, including ATACMS, a U.S. missile with a range of nearly 200 miles. The Biden administration, which is considering adding ATACMS to Ukraine's arsenal, has provided or pledged more than $100 billion in overall assistance since early last year and is now seeking another $24 billion. Most members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats, have supported such aid. But opposition is growing. Former President Donald Trump, as well as other Republican presidential candidates, are among the critics. Hodges supports the additional aid, but says the Biden administration should define more clearly what success in Ukraine would look like. We run the risk of losing some of this, what is so far, very strong effective bipartisan support. And I I think that's exactly what the Kremlin is hoping for, is that the support will eventually fall away. Elbridge Colby, a former Pentagon official, supports U.S. help for Ukraine, though he thinks Europe should be in the lead. His main concern is that a long-running war in Ukraine diverts U.S. attention from China and a possible invasion of Taiwan, which he considers much more important. There's always a trade-off. You may not acknowledge it or know where exactly where it is, but it's going to come. My argument has been that Europe has really got to take the leading role there. Uh, because of the urgency of the threat in the Pacific. Meanwhile, neither the Russians nor Ukrainians are expressing interest in negotiations. Russia claims four Ukrainian regions as permanent Russian territory. Ukraine says it will not give up any land. Charles Kupchin acknowledges it would be difficult to launch talks and harder still to reach agreement. But he says it's important to be ready if and when an opportunity arises. Because it requires preparation and it needs to be on the shelf if, in fact, both Kiev and Moscow arrive at the conclusion that it's worth talking. For now, the focus is still on the fighting. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. A David and Goliath story torn from the internet. In 2021, amateur stock investors made a lot of money and plunged hedge funds into disarray in what was known as the GameStop short squeeze. Critic Bob Mondello says he did not follow the story at the time, but that the new movie comedy, Dumb Money, makes it crystal clear and more fun than you might think possible. We meet Roaring Kitty a bit after we meet Keith Gill, though technically they're the same person. Gill's a 30-something married guy with a baby who works for a life insurance company, but in his basement as Roaring Kitty, he dons a capped t-shirt and a red headband to talk to his YouTube and Reddit followers. Yo, what up, everybody? Roaring Kitty here. I'm going to pick a stock and talk about why I think it's interesting, and that stock is GameStop. I love this guy. That is not an uncommon reaction. Most of Roaring Kitty's followers love him, at least partly because he's making them a lot of money. If he's in, I'm in. If he's in, I'm in. 70,000 people have watched this video. Roaring Kitty, I love 
He took his entire life savings, $53,000, and put it into GameStop, a chain of brick-and-mortar stores catering to gamers, and in his video stream he's tracking how his purchase is doing in real time. There are digital tables and graphs on the wall behind him, and as other folks follow his lead, the stock's been going up. GameStop, those shares not stopping. This initially amuses the hedge fund guys who've been betting against GameStop, that is, selling short. I think they think it's a good investment. Dumb money, man. Happy to take it. By betting against GameStop, the hedge funds are essentially giving it a push off a financial cliff. But if it doesn't fail, they're in trouble. And judging from news reports, they're in trouble. I will tell you, I've never seen anything like it. It's the craziest I think I've ever seen. Director Craig Gillespie is good at keeping the pace snappy while juggling a lot of narrative streams at once. There's Paul Dano's appealingly geeky Keith Gill and Shailene Woodley as his quietly astonished wife. How much did we make today? Five million. And yesterday? Four million. Babe. Yeah. We're like really rich. Also a hilariously profane Pete Davidson as Gill's slacker brother. What are you gonna do? Get a Ferrari? What the Oh, language, the baby's here. We meet a cross-section of Gil's followers. When they hit, I'm gonna buy you a mansion. Let's drink to that. And we also watch the hedge fund guys as they panic, with Seth Rogen doing the lion's share of the panicking. How much did we lose today? A billion. And yesterday? A billion. Do you have a minute? I, uh... Um. Now, it may occur to you at some point that what all these folks are doing is essentially gambling. Dumb and dumber money, right? A lot of small bettors going all in, hoping to bring down what amounts to the Wall Street casino. It's nice that for a while, little guys were able to outdistance billionaires, but as entertaining as dumb money is, it's not exactly a ringing endorsement of the American dream. In a few sentences on screen at the very end, the filmmakers make a pitch for the notion that the success of all that dumb money has changed Wall Street practices for good. A lovely thought, and if you believe it, have I got a stock for you. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. The Red Sox took the first game of the day today with the Yankees at Fenway Park 5 to nothing. Tanner Houck got the win. Second game is tonight at 7.15. Meanwhile, as the Sox were about to take the field, the front office was firing Chaim Bloom. That story and what's behind it coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR. In the forecast, pretty beautiful today, heading down to the mid-50s overnight tonight with clouds moving in. Tomorrow, clouds and sunshine, daytime highs about 70 degrees. And then the rough weather starts Friday and should last through at least part of the day on Saturday, thanks to Hurricane Lee off the coastline. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Emanuel Music. Pianist Simona Dinnerstein returns Saturday, September 23rd, performing three concerti of Bach, Glass, and Mozart. Emanuelmusic.org. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. Stanhopeframers.com. Automakers and their workers spent this week nearing a strike deadline. But they're still not willing to agree on the kinds of raise that will make up for inflation on top of decades of falling wages. We have an update after the deadline passes tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden made a stop in Maryland today to speak to college students about the economy, drawing a stark contrast with Republican Party priorities. America has the strongest economy in the world of all major economics. And, but, and, and all they do is attack it. But, you know, you notice something. For all the time they spend attacking me and my plan, here's what they never do. They never talk about what they want to do. The White House says Biden's trip to Prince George's Community College is an example of how his administration is centered on real issues like the economy that matter to Americans. That speech comes just days after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said he would direct Republican leaders to open an impeachment inquiry into Biden and his family's business dealings. Today, the president's son, Hunter Biden, was indicted on three counts related to the purchase of a handgun five years ago. Republicans are trying to connect the case to his father. In Georgia, there will be at least two trials in the election interference racketeering case that includes former President Donald Trump and 19 others. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, Stephen Fowler reports. Two defendants, attorneys Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbro, requested speedy trials that will begin at the end of October. While the Fulton County DA's office argued the 17 other people charged in connection with attempts to overturn the 2020 election should also head the trial next month, a judge disagreed. Judge Scott McAfee said the procedural and logistical hurdles of including everyone at once were too much and split the case into at least two separate groups. Prosecutors say any trial will take at least four months. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. Big rally on Wall Street today as stocks finished higher across the board. The Dow gained 331 points, up nearly 1%. The tech-heavy Nasdaq up 112 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is going to drop its long-standing partnership with Brigham and Women's Hospital and team up instead with Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. WBR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports Dana-Farber is planning to build its own cancer hospital in Boston's Longwood Medical Area. Right now, Dana-Farber offers outpatient treatment, like chemotherapy. When patients need to be admitted, they go to neighboring Brigham and Women's. Dana-Farber's chief executive, Dr. Lori Glimcher, says she wants this to change. Our patients are sick, and they need to have the best physical environment to make them as comfortable as we can. A brand new cancer center that we are controlling will allow us to give them the very best patient care. Dana-Farber leaders also say in the future, they'll work with Beth Israel on cancer care. Both plans need state approval. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. Cape Cod and the islands in the Gloucester area are expected to bear the brunt of the impact from Hurricane Lee. The storm is expected to bring heavy rain and strong winds late tomorrow night and into Saturday. Eversource is positioning crews ahead of Lee's arrival. Craig Hallstrom is the company's president of electric operations. He says if customers lose power, Eversource hopes to restore it as quickly as it can. We have uh, roughly 400-plus line crews, 200 tree crews, Um, We have our logistics group stood up to provide materials, staging areas, uh, food and lodging for external crews. Customers are encouraged to prepare for the storm by fully charging their electrical devices ahead of time. Hallstrom also reminds people to stay away from any downed power lines. The National Weather Service says today a survey team confirmed a tornado did touch down in North Attleboro yesterday. 
They're still trying to determine if it was the same tornado that caused damage in a community in Connecticut and three communities in Rhode Island. This is 90.9 WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand your clients, build your clinical skills, and advance your career in this psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply. Now accepting applications for spring. Learn more at bgsp.edu. A beautiful summer day, a September kind of summer day, but Hurricane Lee is approaching the coastline. It will not be close to shore, but parts of the state will indeed feel its impact with strong winds and high surf Friday night into Saturday. Then Sunday should bring back the sunshine. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dementia Society of America, committed to helping support brain health and the millions of Americans experiencing the syndrome known as dementia. Learn more at 1-800-DEMENTIA.ORG. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station, This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. This week, the city of Birmingham, Alabama, is remembering one of the darkest chapters in civil rights history. On September 15, 1963, the KKK bombed a downtown church, killing four black girls and rocking the conscience of the nation. Now, 60 years later, survivors of the blast say there are lessons for the country in a climate where politicians are whitewashing racist history. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. Carolyn McKinstry was the Sunday school secretary at 16th Street Baptist Church in 1963 and remembers the day of the bombing in vivid detail. Our lesson for that Sunday morning was a love that forgives. It was Youth Sunday. Everyone was excited about that. McKinstry, who was 15 at the time, retraces her footsteps through the church that day, starting in the basement. She had left Sunday school early to take the collection upstairs to the church office. When I reached the top of the stairs, the phone is ringing, and there's a male caller on the other end who simply says, three minutes. And as quickly as he says that, he hangs up. Moments later, the bomb went off, shattering stained glass windows and shaking the building. When the bomb exploded, you heard screaming, and I heard someone say, hit the floor. And I was right at the first pew, so I just scooted under the pew. Klansmen had planted the bomb beneath a stairwell on the side of the church. She later learned four of her classmates were killed. 11-year-old Denise McNair and Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Addie Mae Collins, all 14. My name is Sarah Collins Rudolph, and I'm the fifth little girl that survived the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. Sarah Collins Rudolph was 12 at the time. She was in the ladies' lounge freshening up with the four other girls, including her sister Addie Mae, who was helping Denise McNair tie the sash on her purple plaid dress. And when she reached her hand out to tie boom! And all I could say was, Jesus, Addie, 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 but she didn't answer. 
So I didn't know where it happened. Collins Rudolph says a deacon dug her from the rubble and she was taken by ambulance to the hospital with shrapnel in her eyes, face and body. Her wounds remain both physical and emotional. She lost an eye and wears a prosthetic. There's still glass embedded in her other eye. I had a lot of fear during that time. Every time I would hear a loud sound, I would jump. Still doing that today. Uh, that bomb was so loud, people heard it across Birmingham. The bombing drew worldwide attention to the brutal tactics employed to maintain white supremacy in the American South and helped spur passage of the Civil Rights Act. But in Birmingham, change was slow to come. Racially motivated bombings continued in the city nicknamed Bombingham for the sheer number of attacks on black homes, churches, and businesses that went unpunished. The 16th Street Church had been targeted because it was used as a gathering place for protesters during the Birmingham movement. Bombing survivor Carolyn McKinstry remembers her confusion when the church reopened after repairs. There was no memorial, there was no celebration. I thought I would see their names on the doors or something, and there was nothing, and no one talked about it. There were no sermons about the evil that had happened here or the people that perpetuated the evil. McKinstry believes no one talked about it out of fear and futility, knowing that racial crimes were left unsolved. There was a bombing across from her home months after the church was hit, adding to her trauma. McKinstry says she struggled for decades. I was 15 when the bomb exploded, but I would remain 15 years old for the next 20 years. I was really stuck in that place, uh, primarily because I never saw anyone arrested or taken to justice for this. The FBI determined that four members of a local KKK clavern were responsible for the bombing. But the first prosecution didn't come until 1977. Then two more in the early 2000s. The fourth killer died never being brought to account. It was an unsolved murder in which there were four families that were destroyed. And those families never had had the full measure of justice. Former Alabama Senator Doug Jones was the U.S. attorney who reopened and prosecuted the case nearly 40 years later. I don't think I recognized it as much at the time, but over time it has become so important for people to reflect on where we were as a country, where we were as a people and how divided we were under Jim Crow laws and how horrific those were and how political leaders can sometimes stoke violence. The bombing came three months after Alabama's staunch segregationist Governor George Wallace had tried to defy the federal courts and block black students from enrolling in the University of Alabama. Now it was fall and public schools were desegregating. Jones says the overall climate gave the Klan cover, and he's worried that today the country is backtracking. It's not just black and white now, it's, a, it's against uh, uh, you know, folks because of their uh, sexual orientation. It's against folks based on their religion, their national origin. Hate crimes are on the rise. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. We are being divided more and more. Events in Birmingham this week seek to lift up the lessons of history at a time when there's a growing conservative political movement to squash discussions of race and equity. My name is Lisa McNair and I am the 
younger sister of Denise McNair, one of the four girls killed in the bombing. Her father, Chris McNair, was a prominent photographer who captured the civil rights era. She's helped curate an exhibit of his work at City Hall. Being a photographer, but being a black photographer, that meant you got to see it from a different perspective as an African-American. There are intimate pictures of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., also one of the damaged 16th Street Church that Chris McNair took shortly after identifying his daughter Denise with a piece of mortar lodged in her forehead. It was the only picture he shot that day of the bombings. You can see the burned out uh, building and the burned out cars. Sitting down to reflect after walking through the exhibit, Lisa McNair says 60 years later, there remains a sense of urgency to preserve this history. It took us from slavery to 100 years for desegregation. You know, I don't want to spend the next 50, 60 years or however long I got fighting to keep from being enslaved again. But we're, the only way it's not going to happen is we have to pay attention. We have to know our history. We got to keep talking. Our stories have got to keep being shared so that everybody will know. McNair says that's the best way to stand up for a better Alabama and a better America. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Birmingham. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston Red Sox chief baseball officer is looking for a job. Today, the team announced it has fired Chaim Bloom. Sox president and CEO Sam Kennedy said in a prepared statement, our fans deserve a winning competitive team that consistently plays postseason baseball. The Sox this year are not headed for the postseason. In fact, they're in a battle with the Yankees at Fenway today to keep out of last place. WBR's Kyrie Thompson, Radio Boston producer and former sports writer for Boston.com, joins us. Thanks for being here, Kyrie. Of course. Thank you. Now, the Red Sox have not finished the season, but today they fired their main guy. Why let Chaim Bloom go, especially right now when they're still playing? In fact, they're still playing today. You know, there's something very eerie about this. When they fired Dave Dombrowski in 2019, it was almost the exact same circumstance. (laughs) Fired in mid-September while the Red Sox were playing the Yankees of all teams. It's a winning formula. it's, It's unbelievable. I think the reason you do that now is you get a head start on candidates because you can already say, look, the position is open with general manager, chief baseball officer, and you let people know about that now. So you can start getting a feel for the landscape. You can get a head start on other teams that might have vacancies coming up. And you kind of hit the ground running in the offseason because right after the season ends, Baseball will have their winter meetings. That's when a lot of discussions about trades and you're going to sign this player. That's when those things start to happen. So you don't want to be without a chief baseball officer, the person making the decision. But why not have that go another season with Ryan Bloom? Why not one more off season with him to see what he can do next year? I think because they've seen enough. And what I mean by that is 
for the past couple of years, if they have been contending, which in 2020 they were not, they were a losing team. Last year they were they were last in, in the American League East. But it felt like for a long time they might be good, but you didn't know how good they were going to be. And there was no telling whether or not Hyam Bloom was ready to go all in and say, you know what, it is time to win now. It was always about the future. It was always about let's keep on building up the, the minor league system and let's not make any rash trades or spend well, that big money bad. on stars. He got them up to like fifth place. Right, yeah, in, in terms of, of their rankings for the minor league system. At the same time, that's all theoretical. you got to hope that those guys come up and become good in the major leagues. Then you have a lot of cheap young talent on your roster for a long time. That's a good business practice, but it's not always very satisfying for fans. There's a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of watching young guys strike out and not catch the ball the way that you've seen with Jaron Duran, uh, the center fielder for the Red Sox. He had a really painful year last year. There's a lot of patience required in that. And as fans, you don't have a lot of patience. You want to win right now. So then was this just John Henry, the owner of the Red Sox, basically making High and Bloom the fall guy to please fans if fans didn't like him? I mean, it may very well be. I mean, you think about the trepidation, I think, about the Red Sox not knowing if they were in or out. And this is actually something that was mentioned last year in the Red Sox locker room where you had players openly asking are they going to make trades? Are they going to believe in us? Are they going to invest in us and see if we can make a playoff team? And when the Red Sox didn't really do that and they only made a couple of minor moves, it seemed like the the wind went out of the Red Sox sails a little bit and they stumbled out of the All-Star break. And really, this year, it, it felt a lot like that. And Haim Bloom said, you know what, we're not going to make a big trade here. We're not going to swing for it. We're going to embrace the underdog label. And I think the outcry from the fans, from the media, from around the league has been such where after a while, that stuff starts to catch up with you. And I think John Henry's probably saying, you know what? Okay, great. We've looked toward the future enough. Let's see if we could win now so they can get off my back. Thank you. WBR's Kyrie Thompson, Radio Boston producer and former sports writer for Boston.com. Nice to talk to you. Thank you very much, Lisa. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. And Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Red Sox took the first game of the day today with the Yankees 5-0. Tanner Houck got the win. Second game is tonight, starting at 7-15. Sure doesn't look as if there's a hurricane working its way off our coast, but there is. Hurricane Lee is losing some steam and staying well offshore. But starting tomorrow night, we should feel the high winds, have wind gusts of about 45 miles an hour, and also likely some pounding surf causing beach erosion, especially on Cape Cod, Nantucket, and to the north, Cape Ann. Stay tuned for the forecast through the day today. This is WBUR. When I talk to people in my field, I say, you hear me on the radio even in California or in Michigan or in Austin. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us. To become a WBUR underwriter, go to WBUR.org slash sponsorship. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If it feels like a lot of people you know are getting COVID these days, you are not alone. Cases are on the rise in the U.S., so are hospitalizations and deaths. In better news, new COVID boosters have started to arrive at pharmacies this week. So... Should you get one? If so, when should you get it? And will you have to pay? Regina Barber from NPR's Shortwave podcast sat down with NPR health correspondents Rob Stein and Maria Godoy to answer those questions and more about the updated vaccines. Okay, Rob, we know coronaviruses mutate a lot. And since this booster was developed, new Omicron subvariants have emerged. How good is this new booster in protecting against the current field of variants? You know, the new boosters are targeted at a much more recent version of Omicron than the previous shots. It's known as XBB15, so these new shots should be a much closer match to currently circulating variants than the earlier vaccines. Right. So when I talked to Andrew Pekosh, he's a virologist and immunologist at Johns Hopkins, he said, you know, the updated shots should be pretty protective. So when you get vaccinated, the vast majority of the antibodies your body generate should cross-react to the variants that are circulating right now. And that's exactly what laboratory studies have found, that the new shots generate neutralizing antibodies that look like they would do a good job of helping fight off the variants that are circulating now. And are these new boosters protective against the latest subvariant that experts are watching really closely? That's BA286? Yeah, that's the good news, and it came as a big relief. When it first emerged, BA286 set off alarms because it had so many mutations. But a spate of recent lab studies suggests it is no better at evading immunity than other circulating variants, and the new COVID boosters should still provide protection. And Deepta Bhattacharya, a professor of immunology at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, says... You know, there's every reason to expect that people will make decent antibodies against the variants that we know about right now. Okay, so then, Maria, what's the guidance for who should get this vaccine? Well, the short answer is anyone six months and up. That's the recommendation the CDC endorsed this week. But experts like John Moore, he's an immunologist from Weill Cornell Medical College, they agree that the booster is most critical for people at higher risk of severe disease from COVID. You know, that's people age 65 and older, or if you're immunocompromised, or... If you are in poor health and have an acknowledged pre-existing condition that puts you at risk of severe COVID, then you are a priority group. Now, one thing to consider is how recently you got the last booster or COVID for that matter. The CDC says people who've had a recent infection may wait three months to get a booster. But, you know, many of the people Maria and I spoke to, like Pekush, say it's okay to wait longer if you're at low risk, and maybe it actually could be a good idea to wait maybe four to six months to get the best bang for the buck from the new shots. If you've been infected less than six months ago, you probably don't need the vaccine right now because you've got some strong immunity from that infection. And, you know, people who are young and otherwise healthy, they're not considered to be at high risk of severe disease. But even so, a lot of the experts I spoke with say getting a booster is still a good idea. Mm-hmm. One of them is Dr. Preetha Milani. She's a professor of medicine at the University of Michigan. I feel that COVID boosters are a good thing for everyone. And the reasons are are multiple. One of them is that even if you're not preventing illness, you're going to have milder illness in general. 
And if you get boosted, it may reduce the chance that you'll pass on the virus to someone vulnerable around you, you know, maybe someone in your own family. And for the first time, the federal government isn't paying for the boosters. Can you still get one for free? Will insurance cover it? If you're insured, your plan should cover it. That's according to Jennifer Cates. She's a policy analyst I spoke to at Kaiser Family Foundation. Although if you get the shot from a provider who's out of your insurance network, there may be a cost. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are an estimated 25 to 30 million other adults in the U.S. who don't have health insurance. Right. And if you're uninsured, the Federal Bridge Access Program will provide free vaccines through the end of 2024. The CDC's gov website has information on where to go to get the no-cost shots. Kate says it's unclear if the program will be able to accommodate every uninsured person who needs a free shot, but it's good to see the government trying to fill in those gaps. Now, yeah. for uninsured children, they can still get COVID vaccines and other immunizations for free under the Vaccines for Children program. Now, if you have to pay out of pocket for a vaccine, that could cost between $120 and $129 a shot. Those what? are, yeah, that's what Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna plan to charge for the shots. Those are the list prices, wow. respectively. Now, COVID doesn't operate in a vacuum. There's also the flu virus and RSV lurking around out there, for example. And RSV is a common respiratory virus. It usually causes mild illness, but it can be serious for young children and older adults. So if people are looking to get multiple shots, can they get, say, the COVID booster at the same time as the flu vaccine or other vaccines? Yeah, the CDC says adults can get a flu vaccine and a COVID shot at the same visit. In fact, they might want to do that just, you know, because it'd be more convenient. You might choose to maybe stagger them slightly because, you know, they can hurt and you don't want to have painful arms at the same time, or maybe you had a bad reaction to one in the past and you sort of want to you know, give yourself a break. It's really up to you. and It's a personal decision. You can get them together or you can stagger them if that you feel more comfortable with that. But most experts we talked to, like Pekosh, they recommended getting the vaccine for RSV separately. So I think the recommendation would be if you're going in, get your flu and COVID shot. If you're eligible for RSV, maybe space that out by a week or two. That's because theoretically, it should be fine to get all three shots at once. But since the RSV shot is new this year, there's just no data. There's no scientific reason to think they wouldn't be. But, you know, scientists like data. Okay, noted. But how long will the latest booster protect people? You know, you'll get a boost in immunity within, you know, a couple of weeks, maybe two weeks after getting the shot that could reduce your risk of coming down with COVID. And that protection will likely last for a few months. Now, some people will try to, like, maximize it. For instance, they want to get more bang for the buck for their protection by, say, waiting until a couple of weeks before they're planning to do something big, like go on vacation or gather with family for the holidays. But some experts say waiting can be risky, especially if the numbers are all going up right now. Mm -hmm. But regardless of what date you get the booster, when you do get it, it will give you a boost in protection against severe disease. You know, the kind of scary symptoms that can send you to the hospital. The protection against that sort of thing should last longer. Dr. Robert Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, estimates it will markedly increase your protection against getting very sick for about a year or so. 
Of course, exactly how long depends on a variety of factors, including your immune system, your overall health, your age, and your prior exposures to both the vaccines and infections. That is NPR health correspondents Rob Stein and Maria Godoy speaking with the host of NPR's shortwave science podcast, Regina Barber. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from 20th Century Studios presenting A Haunting in Venice. From the world of Agatha Christie comes a supernatural thriller. Rated PG-13, only in theaters Friday. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Mattress Firm, whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at MattressFirm.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday afternoon. It's a beautiful afternoon. Blue skies and sunshine. Should have some clouds move in tonight. Could have some clouds around tomorrow, some sunshine as well. Daytime highs about 70 degrees. The rain from Hurricane Lee off the coastline should start tomorrow night and continue Saturday. We should have wind gusts of about 45 miles an hour. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Fresh City Kitchen, now accepting orders and helping you plan for your holiday catering needs. Learn more at freshcitykitchen.com. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Unionized auto workers may walk off the job as soon as tonight. That would affect the workers, the car companies they work for, and the broader economy, too. You have people who are striking. They need to cut back on their spending. Uh, And that spills over to local communities. The economics of a strike coming up on this Thursday, September 14th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up in Ukraine, by some estimates, the world's most mined country, there's a race to clear explosives left by Russians along the southeastern front line that would pave the way for Ukrainian troops to take back occupied land. And harbor masters on Cape Cod and north in Cape Ann are calling on the boats to come in as they prepare for the punches Hurricane Lee may deliver tomorrow night into Saturday. Most of the state should be spared the worst of the storm. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A strike by auto workers is appearing ever more likely. The big three automakers and the United Auto Workers Union have just hours left before their current contracts expire. NPR's Andrew Shue has more. The parties have until 11.59 tonight to reach some kind of a deal, or else UAW President Sean Fain says auto workers will strike, but not all at once. We will strike all three companies a historic first 
initially at a limited number of targeted locations that we will be announcing. At 10 p.m. tonight, depending on how talks go, the union may call on more plants to join the strike. Last night, Ford CEO Jim Farley told reporters he's doing everything he can to move things forward. We have put great offers in front of the UAW and we're waiting for the response and we have time to make this deal. The future of the industry, he said, waits in the balance. Andrea Shu, NPR News. The first of its kind indictment today against the son of a sitting president. A three-count indictment against Hunter Biden in connection with charges he lied about his drug use on a form when he purchased a gun in 2018. The indictment by special counsel David Weiss comes after a plea deal struck between the president's son and the Justice Department fell apart. During a speech today outlining details of his economic agenda, President Biden apparently made no reference to his son's latest problems. President Biden is currently the focus of an impeachment investigation in the House. Florida governor and GOP presidential candidate Ron DeSantis is urging Floridians not to get the newest COVID-19 vaccine. That's in direct contradiction of federal health officials. Remember station WGCU in Fort Myers, John Davis has more. The CDC recommends the shot for most people as young as six months, but Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and State Surgeon General Joseph Latipo say healthy children and adults under 65 should avoid the latest COVID vaccine. This comes as Florida leads the nation in the rate of COVID-related hospital admissions. Infectious disease specialist with the Lee Health Hospital System in southwest Florida, Dr. Mary Beth Saunders, says Lee Health will continue to follow the CDC guidance. People do need to get vaccinated. If they're unsure, talk to their health care provider so they can be guided as to what's best for them. Delivery of the vaccine has been delayed by Hurricane Idalia, but Lee Health expects to have doses available in October. For NPR News, I'm John Davis in Fort Myers. Hurricane Lee is now a Category 1 storm, but those who may be in the storm's path should not let down their guard. Daniel Brown is a senior specialist at the National Hurricane Center in Miami and says tropical storm warnings and watches are up for a wide area. We want folks not to really be focusing on on the exact track of the storm as, uh, you know, these winds and rainfall impacts are going to extend very far from the center. That leaves a very big hurricane. Lee could make landfall over the weekend in Nova Scotia as a tropical storm. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Cape and Islands are bracing for the effects of Hurricane Lee this weekend and its wind gusts of 50 to maybe 60 miles an hour. The storm is expected to stay off the coast and weaken, but we could feel the effects tomorrow and into Saturday. National Weather Service meteorologist Frank Nassera says there could be some storm surge and minor coastal flooding on the Cape, especially on the bay side. Winds are going to be northeast Friday night, then coming around to the north Saturday morning, and then northwest for Saturday afternoon. So that's kind of a, a long duration of uh, pushing water into the bay and actually preventing it from, from draining. On the plus side, Nasera says tides will be fairly low, and the hurricane's expected to pass 100 to 150 miles east of the Cape. On Cape Cod, the town of Dennis is asking residents to prepare ahead of Hurricane Lee's arrival off the coastline. Harbormaster Dawson Farber suggests people properly secure their boats and other property. Dinghies, kayaks, uh, stand-up paddle boards, um, small boats, power boats, sailboats. Uh, make sure that they're either pulled out of the water or off of the, out of the intertidal zone. 
uh, or at a minimum have them uh, secured. Farber also suggests people put their name and contact information on their property so it can be returned if it breaks free. He also says it would also help prevent unnecessary searching for a missing boater who actually is not missing. The Steamship Authority is waiving change and cancellation fees for customers who book travel on its ferries tomorrow, Saturday or Sunday. This is in anticipation of rough conditions as Hurricane Lee passes by out to sea. The authority says it expects ferries to have been cancelled through the day on Saturday on both its Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard routes. And big changes are coming to Dana-Farber. The hospital announced today it wants to build its own cancer centre in the Longwood Medical Area and end its long association with Brigham and Women's. It says the idea is to have a dedicated hospital for people whose needs go beyond outpatient care rather than having them admitted to Brigham next door. Dana Farber also says it plans to partner with Beth Israel Deaconess on cancer care. In the forecast, as we said, Hurricane Lee is approaching the coastline. It will not come close to shore, but the state should feel its impact. Strong winds and high surf Friday night into Saturday. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We are just hours away from a deadline when the contract covering 150,000 auto workers is set to expire. Here's union president Sean Fain. Our message to the companies was clear. If we don't have a fair contract by midnight on Thursday night, we will strike. Well, what would a strike mean for the auto workers, the car companies, and the broader economy? We're going to lift up the hood and talk about that for a few minutes now with NPR's Scott Horsley. Hey, Scott. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so 150,000 workers sounds pretty massive to me. What would a strike like that look like, you think? We don't know exactly. Uh, This is an unusual situation because the union says it's planning to strike all three of the Detroit automakers, but not all of their plants, at least at the outset. Uh, Instead, Sean Fain, the UAW leader, says they initially plan to target a small number of factories at each of the three companies, Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler's parents, Stellantis, and then, if necessary, ratchet up the walkout over time. We are maintaining maximum flexibility This is going to create confusion for the companies. It's going to keep them guessing on what might happen next. So the initial economic impact of this strike could be fairly limited. Obviously, if it goes on for a long time and if more plants are targeted, then the bigger the fallout would be. Right. Well, where would those effects be felt first, do you think? Well, at the plants where the workers do strike, production would come to an immediate stop. And if we're talking about, say, an engine or a transmission plant, then there could be ripple effects at assembly plants down the line. Uh, Of course, the striking workers will not be getting paychecks. Uh, They will be getting $500 a week in strike pay from their union. Uh, On average, though, that would only make up for about 40 percent of what they would have been paid. So economist Gabe Ehrlich of the University of Michigan says you would expect to see some reduced spending in the communities where those auto workers live. You hear anecdotally people say, you know, I've prepared for a strike, but there's only so much you can do to save up for a strike. You know, obviously the $500 a week helps, but it's not making up for a full paycheck. You know, maybe you skip going out to lunch, maybe you skip going out to dinner. 
Eventually, you could also see fallout at the companies that supply parts to the automakers, potentially uh, involving many more workers, although that probably would not happen right away. You know, the automakers have now lived through several years of part shortages, so Ehrlich thinks they're going to be slow to cancel their orders. And even if those orders do slow down, the parts makers might be wary about laying off their workers, given the tight labor market. So it's not as if the whistle blows at midnight tonight and the whole supply chain hits the brakes. But if a strike goes on for eight or ten weeks, then it could be a different story. All right. Well, I mean, Scott, the Detroit automakers, they're not as dominant as they once were. So how big of an impact would a strike like this have on the broader U.S. economy, you think? You're right. These three companies are not as big as they used to be, and neither is the UAW. Uh, Economists say even if all 150,000 workers were to go on strike, say through the end of October, that would probably shave about two-tenths of one percent off the country's GDP in the final months of the year. That that is noticeable, but it's not earth-shaking. This is also a more contained industry than, say, UPS or the railroads, where we had a recent threat of strikes that would have had more far-reaching effects. Obviously, in communities where car makers are concentrated, the impact is significant. But even in Michigan, Gabe Ehrlich says, a reasonably short strike would probably not do lasting damage. What I worry about is, you know, if we had a substantially more intense strike that was more acrimonious, that drags on substantially longer, does that start to lead the automakers to rethink where they invest. After a protracted machinist strike in 2008, for example, Boeing shifted some production to a new plant in South Carolina, which is a fiercely anti-union state. On the other hand, if a strike produces a much improved contract, uh, that could give fresh momentum to union organizing efforts. Well, what if I'm in the market for a new car? Is there going to be less for me to choose from? You know, if you want a specific model from one of these companies, it could be harder to find. Uh, Ford has about a two-month supply of vehicles on hand, GM a little less, Stellantis a little more. So there is a cushion, but it won't last indefinitely. Obviously, Toyota, Honda, Volkswagen, other car makers will still be churning out vehicles. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Ukraine's counteroffensive to reclaim land occupied by Russian forces has gone slowly, in part because explosives are buried under much of the front line. One of the most crucial jobs in the Ukrainian military is removing them. NPR's Joanna Kakissis and producer Polina Litvinova talked with the people doing this dangerous work. We are driving along a dirt road to reach the landmine experts in the 35th Marine Brigade. We pull over near an enormous field of sunflowers. Let's go. The demining unit is a short walk away, inside a camouflaged hut behind the sunflowers. These soldiers are known as sappers, after a French word describing the dismantling of enemy fortifications. Hi, nice to meet you, Joanna. Hi, Misha. Nice to meet you. One sapper introduces himself as Misha. No one gives their last name here for security reasons. Misha's holding a metal detector. He wants to show me how it works. He turns it on and hovers it over a mine called the Black Widow, which his team recently found and disabled. So, Misha, when you hear that sound, that like sound, you know something's up, right? Yeah. Danger sound. The sound of danger. On the front line, that means a mine lies a step or two away. 
in case artillery fire drowns out that sound of danger. The metal detector also vibrates to warn the sappers. Yeah, it's like uh, somebody calling you on your cell phone. Oh, that's what it feels like, that kind of vibration. Monitoring groups say Ukraine is now the most landmine country in the world. Sapper units are especially needed along the line of attack to clear landmines left by Russian soldiers. A company commander from another unit who uses the call sign Hans told NPR that Ukrainian troops cannot advance without sappers. The biggest challenge is landmines. Every bit of land is mined. Turning our vehicle half a meter to the left or right could trigger an explosion. We meet Misha and two of his fellow sappers, Roman and Georgi, while they're on break from the front line. We talk around a weathered picnic table that they call their conference room. The men are all in their 30s. They trained for three months and have been on the front lines of Russia's war on Ukraine for seven months. They spend up to 20 consecutive days on each mission. Misha is boyish and blue-eyed. His wife is in Germany, where he used to work in construction. He speaks a bit of English, but often switches to Ukrainian. I chose to be a sapper because I imagined that you were working in silence, in peace, quietly looking for mines, and the shooting is somewhere far away. Well, I was wrong. The sappers walk ahead of the other Ukrainian soldiers. They are right in the line of fire. Roman knows firsthand how dangerous this could be. He's tall and sunburned and used to repair churches before the war. He says two of his fellow sappers died on a mission this spring. Roman was badly injured. I was wounded in the leg, tank fire. I spent a month recovering in the hospital and another month recovering at home. I was still in a rehabilitation at home when the counteroffensive began. The sappers are mainly looking for two kinds of explosives, anti-personnel mines and anti-tank mines. Georgi, who is bearded with a gravelly voice, explains that Russian soldiers sometimes stack the explosives. They put something small under an anti-tank mine, like a grenade. If we don't pull it out properly, there could be an explosion. It's called a trap mine. Misha chimes in. They try to trick us all the time, thinking they're smarter than us. And we are trying to outwit them. Sometimes, he says, the Russians stack three mines on top of each other. Misha calls this a sandwich. And, he adds, Russians often hide explosives in unexpected places, like inside an energy drink. They'll put, like, a mine in a, a can of Red Bull. Even cigarettes. Sometimes it's even cigarettes. It can be everything. The men admit that each mission to demine the front line feels like it could be their last. Roman says he tries to stay calm by considering the worst-case scenarios and how to get out of them. What are the escape routes? What are the approaching routes? I consider as many options as possible. I will have plans ready to go in my head. Georgi does this too, but he says he also appeals to divine intervention. I have my own little prayer, and I have an icon of the Virgin Mary inside my helmet. I pray for everyone on our mission. I repeat the prayer three times in my head and then say, thank God we are still alive. Just as we finish talking, a Ukrainian jet flies above. 
a sign Russian missiles might be in the air. Misha, Roman, and Jorge don't seem to notice. They go back to checking their metal detectors. Though some units use advanced equipment like infrared drones, most sappers, including this crew, work the old-fashioned way. They are now back on the front line. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News in the Dnipropetrovsk region of Ukraine. Actors and writers have been striking for months now, but they're not allowed to picket in front of what are called neutral gates. Those are the studio entrances where people who work on non-struck shows, like some game shows, can enter the lot so they don't have to cross a picket line. But some writers suspected the neutral gate system was being abused. There are really good-looking actor types going through these neutral gates right now. and. I found it hard to believe that all of those cars were neutral parties. We follow up on that mystery tomorrow on All Things Considered. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Dow rose nearly a full percent today for its best day since early August. S&P and NASDAQ were also up. Both gained about eight-tenths of a percent. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Salem State University's School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. salemstate.edu graduate. Massachusetts ranks seventh in the nation for clean energy jobs. A report from the National Business Group Environmental Entrepreneurs says the state had just over 118,000 green jobs last year. That's up roughly 10,000 from 2020. Most were in the energy efficiency field. After that, renewable energy jobs and jobs in hybrid and the electric vehicle industry. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. Now featuring Hunter Douglas shades for light and glare control and hard-to-reach windows. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo Route 9 Natick and Innuendo.com. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare and a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at LaCuchara.com. Hurricane Lee is growing weaker. It's now a Category 1 storm, but it still could cause some damage when it uh, comes to the Massachusetts coast, off the coast, this weekend. Here's WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Biggest concerns for us are at the coast. We're pounding surf, beach erosion, and minor to moderate coastal flooding overnight Friday and Saturday for the midday high tide will occur. In terms of wind, Cape Cod gets the worst of it. Gusts 55 to 65 there, an isolated gust to 70 possible. The north and south shore gust to 45 miles per hour. The city could see a gust to 40 or so. Isolated pockets of damage and outages result. For rain, it's one to two inches on Cape Cod starting tomorrow night, lasting into Saturday afternoon, but it's much less, maybe a quarter of an inch, less than that for the rest of eastern Massachusetts. And eastern Maine will bear the brunt of the impact through Saturday evening. The storm is long gone by Sunday. It's 521. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, streaming new and familiar British comedies starring Greg Davies, David Tennant, Ricky Gervais, Chris O'Dowd, and others. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. 
D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. A story now of the decade of civil war in Yemen and a mediator between the two sides there. He's a farmer, and he helps the factions exchange the remains of fallen soldiers. NPR's Fatma Tanis tells us his story, and just a warning, it contains gruesome details. I meet Amin al-Muqaddam in a morgue where he spent most of his days during the war. He shows me the mortuary cabinets and then chest freezers too, and they're all full. This was the only morgue that would accept bodies from both sides. We didn't even have enough places to store them. We had to find donors to buy chest freezers on the black market. Yemen's civil war has been going on for nearly a decade. It started when Iran-backed Houthi rebels in the north of Yemen overthrew the Saudi-backed government. The conflict exploded into a proxy war, and this city of Taiz became divided by a front line, bombarded by Saudi-led airstrikes, Houthi missiles, and landmines. And through it all, al-Muqaddam, who's in his 40s, saw the human toll up close. He worked to find the remains of dead soldiers and facilitate their exchange and return them to their families. He says this has all been volunteer work, and he still makes his money off his land. I didn't really get into this intentionally. When the war erupted, several bodies fell near my house. And then I saw something so disturbing, I can't forget it to this day. Dogs eating the corpses. I couldn't let that happen again. They were government fighters who had died in Houthi territory. Al-Muqaddam went to the Houthi leadership in the area to ask them to bury the dead. They told me, why don't you take them back to the other side? And I said, okay, if you'll let me do it. Then they said, only if you bring back our dead from that side too. Then each side started calling me, can you bring us this body, can you bring us that body? And I found myself the middleman. It wasn't easy. He got some help from the Red Cross and Red Crescent in the beginning. But he had to deal with a lot of suspicion too. It was very difficult to gain the trust. Both sides accused me of working for their enemy. It took three years, and finally they saw that my work was genuine, consistent, and humanitarian, and we finally got to that point of trust. I've even mediated several prisoner exchanges. There's one case he remembers that stuck with him, a soldier for the pro-government forces who was the only child of his parents. Al-Muqaddam knew them personally, too. It was in 2016, and the war was so intense then that his body was stuck on the other side for a year. His mother and family were in a terrible condition. During one lull in the fighting, I figured out a way to get to him and bring his body back to his family. For me, it was a very difficult one. This war is pointless. It has destroyed everything. And all the blood being shed is Yemeni blood. Each time I had to pick up another dead Yemeni body, I felt this pain. How long can this go on? The war is now at a stalemate amid peace talks between Saudi Arabia and the Houthis. It's brought some hope that peace is close. But the country is fractured, and many Yemenis think Yemen's future is taking a back seat to international and regional interests. As someone who's worked closely with the two warring sides, al-Muqaddam has a slightly different take. I have seen leaders from both sides. When they meet, they greet each other normally as two Yemenis would. 
If Yemenis can sit down together and talk sincerely, we will have true peace. But if the talks are based on politics and opportunism, this will go on for another 10 years. These days, there are no new exchanges to make. So Al-Muqaddam spends most of his time trying to investigate the unidentified remains left in this morgue and deliver them to their families. He says he'll be working on these kinds of cases for years. When I ask him what his family has made of his new career, he lets out a big laugh. <laughs> like other men here, he had two wives, but one of them left him. She couldn't handle it and hated what I was doing, that I would spend all my time around dead bodies. I ask him, is the job so important that he got divorced over it? Nothing is more important than relieving a mother of years-long pain and suffering, he says. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Taiz, Yemen. One of the CIA's most famous operations was extracting six American diplomats from Iran after the U.S. embassy there was overrun in 1979. The CIA declassified the story years ago, and it was turned into the movie Argo, which won the Oscar for Best Picture a decade ago. But one important detail was kept secret until today. Here's NPR's Greg Myrie. In the movie, Ben Affleck portrays Tony Mendez, a lone CIA officer sent to Iran to stealthily bring out six Americans being sheltered by the Canadian ambassador. In reality, two CIA officers were dispatched on the mission. The identity of the second officer was not made public until the CIA disclosed it Thursday in its own podcast, The Langley Files. Yes, the CIA has its own podcast. The second previously undisclosed agency officer who snuck into Iran alongside Tony Mendez. Ed Johnson. Ed Johnson. Ed Johnson. CIA officer Walter Trosen, who co-hosts the podcast, recaps the plot. CIA hatched a plan straight out of fiction. Send CIA officers disguised as filmmakers into Iran, train the stranded Americans to impersonate a film crew, and lead the entire group back out, past Iranian security, at the border. The name of the fake film they were pretending to scout for? Argo. The CIA declassified the operation way back in 1997, but Johnson had always preferred to keep his identity secret. When Johnson's family visited CIA headquarters this summer, Trosen met with them and tried to figure out a way to tell his story. Johnson, who's now age 80 and ailing, finally agreed to be identified. And it turned out Johnson had made an internal CIA recording about the operation years ago. Podcast gold. In the recording, Johnson explains the first challenge was to get the diplomats to play the part of a movie crew. These were rookies. They weren't trained to be clandestine, elusive. The six were given Canadian passports and specific roles to play, which they rehearsed repeatedly. The moment of truth came at the airport in Tehran, where they faced multiple security checks. There are so many possibilities at any point along the way that uh, you can have your cover stories. 
and you're planning and they can go up in a ball of wax. And everyone performed fantastic. Of course, not all CIA operations go off with cinematic precision, but this one did. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. Are you new to Boston and wondering what a Charlie card is? Here's another tip from our field guide to Boston. Our public transit system is called the MBTA, or the T for short. It was the first subway in the United States. It's even got an unofficial theme song. Well, let me tell you of the story of a man named Charlie on a tragic and fateful day. He put 10 cents in his pocket, kissed his wife and family. It was a campaign song for a mayoral candidate in Boston back in 1949. Residents at the time were outraged that the tea wanted to raise its fare prices. And this is where the Charlie card got its name. You use these plastic cards to pay for a ride, and you could load it up at almost any subway or Silver Line station. To get more tips like this about navigating Boston, head to WBUR.org slash field guide. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Reaching out to young voters, Vice President Kamala Harris kicked off a Fight for Our Freedoms tour of college campuses today in Norfolk, Virginia, to an overflow crowd of students and faculty at historically black Hampton College. When I see you, I know the future of our country is bright and full of promise, and I'm so happy to be here in Hampton to see all of these extraordinary leaders. Vice President Harris issued a call to action urging students to go to the polls as voting for statewide seats there began one week from tomorrow. She also discussed gun laws, climate change action, and reproductive rights. The president's son, Hunter Biden, has been indicted on three counts related to the purchase of a handgun five years ago. It's not the first time these charges have been brought. Biden's lawyers made a plea deal on the gun and drug charges this summer, which fell apart when a judge questioned it. Now the president's son is facing up to 25 years in prison if convicted. House Republicans are also trying to connect the case to his father. Russia says it's blocked Ukrainian airstrikes today on the occupied Crimean Peninsula. We get more from NPR's Charles Maines with this update from Moscow. According to Russia's defense ministry, a Russian naval patrol vessel repelled an attack by five unmanned Ukrainian boats in the Black Sea. The ministry also said Russian air defenses later destroyed another 11 Ukrainian drones as they attempted to strike targets in Crimea. Local residents near the town of Yevpatoria on Crimea's west coast reported hearing a series of explosions. The apparent attacks came just a day after the Moscow-backed authorities in the occupied port city of Sevastopol said Ukrainian rockets struck a ship repair factory. Crimea has been targeted by Ukraine throughout Russia's invasion, but attacks have intensified amid an ongoing counteroffensive in Ukraine's occupied south. That's reporter Charles Maines. This is NPR. Georgia's film and TV production spent more than $4 billion in the state in the last fiscal year, but as Lily Oppenheimer of member station WABE tells us, the ongoing Hollywood strike still has productions at a standstill. 
The Georgia Screen Entertainment Coalition says incentives from the state's film tax credit breaks brought in those billions in 2022. That money flowed into Georgia businesses which sell lumber, lighting, travel services, catering, and hotel rooms. Georgia Studios also plan to invest another nearly $3 billion in construction spending over the next five years. And the state's on its way to housing the most square footage of sound stages in North America. But this comes as most productions are still on hold because of the ongoing Writers Guild of America and SAG after strike against Hollywood film moguls. According to the Motion Picture Association, film and TV is responsible for more than 46,000 jobs in Georgia. For NPR News, I'm Lily Oppenheimer in Atlanta. One person is dead. Several others have been hospitalized in Paris after a botulism outbreak tied to sardines. Health officials there have linked the outbreak to homemade sardine preserves that were served by a Bordeaux wine bar last week. The woman who died was from Paris, while some of the others sickened included visitors from the U.S., Canada, Germany, and Spain. Foodborne botulism can cause paralysis, breathing difficulty, and sometimes death. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include Clark, where you can begin your kitchen project by learning about Sub-Zero and Wolf Appliances in interactive showrooms in Boston and Milford. More at clarkliving.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian. Checking the forecast, tonight we'll have increasing clouds, low 57 degrees. Tomorrow, overcast and breezy with a high of 70. Cloudy and windy tomorrow night in the Boston area as we keep an eye on Hurricane Lee, low of 58. Cape Cod, the islands and parts of Cape Ann are expected to bear the brunt of the storm, with Lee likely passing at least 100 miles from Cape Cod, possibly as much as 150 miles. The storm clears out during the day Saturday, cloudy and windy with highs in the upper 60s. The wind sticks around for Sunday. It'll be sunny near 80 degrees. Right now, sunny and 74. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. It's unusual for child poverty to double in a year. And equally unusual, we can pretty clearly say why it happened. The expanded child tax credit that started two years ago came to an end. The extra help made a huge difference for Jennifer Bereskin, who lives in Bothell, Washington. She and her 11-year-old son are on disability. I needed car repairs. I needed to replenish our food, you know, being able to have dry goods and things. Because during that COVID and everything, you know, grocery stores were running out of food quite quickly. The money allowed her to catch her breath. I could, like, breathe for a moment and be able to be like, all right, I can, I don't have to sacrifice you know, something here to to get something else. I could get everything I needed. Across the country, child poverty fell dramatically. And then less than a year after the expanded child tax credit was enacted, 
Congress let it expire. New census data show that child poverty rose last year from 5.2% to 12.4%. Pediatrician and researcher Megan Sandal sees the impact this has on kids she treats at Boston Medical Center. Welcome back to All Things Considered, Dr. Sandal. Thanks for having me, Ari. A couple years ago, you were on the program after the child tax credit expansion took effect. And here's what you told us. I really have to call out the child tax credit. We have seen in the last six months, families starting to get back on their feet. We have started to graduate kids from our grow clinic finally. And a lot of that has to do with being able to have that consistent check every month that they know they're getting. So now that the credit is gone and child poverty is way up, what are you seeing? You know, we're seeing families just under that enormous stress again. They are having to make really tough decisions. They have kids going back to school and they don't know if they can afford a backpack and that school uniform and needing to make really difficult choices about whether or not they're going to be able to uh, actually be able to afford the food that their kids need to grow. I think everybody understands that poverty affects health. But as a doctor, can you tell us specifically what you tend to see more of when families struggle to meet kids' basic needs? Yeah, I think, you know, many of us who are parents remember taking our kids to the doctor. And one of the things we do is we measure your weight and your height and we put you on a growth curve. What are you expected to grow? What's the rate you're expected to grow for different ages? And what we're starting to see is kids flatlining, kids who should be growing, should be gaining weight should be frankly growing the brain that they need for the rest of their lives. And we're seeing kids not grow. We're seeing kids lose weight, which when you're three or four years old, that is a medical emergency, what's going on. And a lot of times when we really dig deeper, it's simply because people can't afford enough food and are stretching beyond what they can deal with. Is there a family or a kid you can tell us about who kind of puts a face to this trend? Yeah, one of my favorite um, families, their child was getting ready for kindergarten. And, you know, this was a kid who I was ready to graduate in August because he was going to kindergarten. We had gotten him back to his weight. He didn't need special shakes anymore, like Pediasure or things to grow. And he showed up and his weight had, he had lost two pounds, like not even gained, not even flatlined. He had lost weight. And And what ended up coming out was that, you know, they were really, really stretched and they no longer had the child tax credit. These expanded benefits ended during a time of record inflation. How does that overlay on these other trends you're talking about? I do think that it is important to name both food inflation and honestly housing costs as two of the biggest bills that families have to face every day. That being said, what you were able to see is even in those rising costs, there was effective ways in which to reduce child poverty. And so what I don't want people to walk away from is to say, oh, well, inflation, it, it, it doesn't matter. If you give people more money, it's just going to be you know, spent and it, it won't travel as far. I do think that, that in many ways it really is about the positive effects of putting money in people's pockets. I think that what it underlies is that we also need to start thinking about ways in which to help people out of poverty and to be more financially stable, to not just improve their income, but to help them be able to save money. A lot of programs disincentivize people saving and you gain more money, but you actually lose a benefit. And I also think that we this is a moment where we need to invest in housing. A lot of the infrastructure and Build Back Better had housing in the original plan and it went away. And I think that 
if I were to tell you, you know, food insecurity and housing insecurity are the twin demons that face my families that I serve every day. And so we need to be able to talk about, about them together. As a medical provider, how does it feel to see a government program that you could see helping your patients effectively be eliminated despite the fact that it was making a visible difference? It's so interesting. We talk about evidence-based government and always wanting to say we're investing in things that work. And so this is really where we need to look ourselves in the mirror. We have something that worked really, really well. And so I want to ask, what are the ways in which, you know, we can say to ourselves, this is worthy of investment? Because what I like to say is I can do my best role as a physician to help kids grow. But what I need is policymakers to do their job to be able to help kids grow too. And that is really in their hands. And so I'm not gonna give up the fight. Like I'm not gonna say, you know, it, it's, it's over. I think that these are the wake up call that we can do better. And this is, I'd love to be able to come on in a year and be able to talk about that we got the, the number back down to 5% and beyond. What does it do to somebody's prospects as an adult when they grow up? without the kind of growth, weight gain, and development that that you were seeing when this child tax credit was in place? Yeah, I think, you know, there are really important metrics around um, how kids are going to thrive in the economy. So one is, are they showing up to kindergarten ready to learn? Are they in third grade reading at grade level? Because after third grade is where you read to learn. And if you're not reading on grade level, you're missing out. And then are you able to, you know, thrive in high school, graduate and be able to, to move into the economy? And I think that when we start thinking about these ripple effects, you know, being able to see translated in literally kids body weight, how they are doing well and how their families are thriving or not. I do think that that can make a difference in terms of what that child's going to be able to accomplish. Now, I don't ever want to give up on kids and families and, you know, whether or not you missed out on a critical time period of growth, I'm going to try and catch you back up to that curve. And it's meant we've had to, you know, institute programs like special education, you know, consultation programs to help those kids get back on track, but it is avoidable. It was preventable. And that's the thing that I think is important is that we can do better. We saw it work. Now we have to get back to doing it regularly and making it a permanent fix. That's Dr. Megan Sandel, pediatrician at Boston Medical Center. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ari, for bringing light to this really important issue. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Garo Hagopian. Harbor masters along the Massachusetts coast are preparing for the arrival of storm surges and tropical storm force winds overnight tomorrow into Saturday. Hurricane Lee is expected to bring winds between 30 and 40 miles per hour and gusts between 50 and 60 to the Cape and Islands as it passes by far off the coast. Don German is the Provincetown Harbor Master. He tells WBUR's Lisa Mullins that although the Cape could face more severe storms based on what he's seen there before, he's taking this one seriously. 
for me on a scale, it's a, maybe a, a, a seven out of ten. Oh. Um, we've had worse storms that were just nor'easters, so this is really being treated more like a moderate nor'easter. So we know things could change between now and tomorrow night and uh, or the weekend, but what are you doing to prepare? What have you spent the day doing? Boats are coming out of the harbor. I'm not requiring it because of the weather forecast. I made the determination it would not be necessary for them to come out if uh, people are using proper chafing gear and lines on their moorings. Uh, we have a dinghy dock here for access to people's moorings. Those boats were taking a little bit harder line on as far as getting them out as much as possible and at a minimum removing anything that is a petroleum product like gasoline tanks, fuel oil, anything like that, as well as the outboard motors. We want those off the boats. You want them off the boats so there's not going to be any environmental hazard? Correct. What about uh, larger boats, whale watch boats, ferries, uh, charter fishing boats? No, they're, for the most part, staying. Staying put? Yeah, they're large enough, and they're only maybe two, 300 feet away from the shoreline. I mean, they experience 50-mile-an-hour uh, winds quite often here um, when we have thunderstorms and that kind of thing without any problem. What are the main concerns that you have overall for safety there? Main concern is um, that people secure everything on their boats, that um, if they are remaining on a mooring, that they don't leave chairs out where they can blow off the boat and go into the harbor, that uh, especially there are no fuel tanks or anything like that that they might have, so that way it doesn't end up in the harbor causing a pollution problem or causing um, flotsam that can do damage to someone else's property. Do you worry about the casual storm spectator coming out to the pier or the beach? Not really. If we were expecting a hurricane to hit here, we would close the pier down and we wouldn't allow people to walk out here. But there will be people more than likely to come out here with rain gear to want to see what things look like. More often than walking, they'll be driving out here. And as long as the winds don't generally exceed what's expected, then there wouldn't be anything wrong with that. When something like this happens, uh, potentially not the worst storm you've ever faced, but you said a 7 out of 10, do you spend that time kind of white-knuckling it or kind of enjoying it because this is what you prepare for, or, or how, <laughs> how do you envision it? No, I can't say I've ever really enjoyed it. I guess it's human nature that, you know, you're always second-guessing yourself. So uh, I really don't enjoy a storm until it's passed. <laughs> and then you can enjoy it all you want. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we wish you good luck, um, and, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Bye. And that's uh, Don German, the Provincetown Harbor Master, speaking with WBUR's Lisa Mullins. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for spring. bgsp.edu.
This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Garo Hagopian. Hunter Biden is indicted on felony gun charges weeks after a plea deal struck between President Biden's son and prosecutors fell apart. More coming up in about 15 minutes here on WBUR. Meantime, WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce reports Hurricane Lee is about 700 miles south of Nantucket and the Category 1 storm is continuing to weaken. The closest pass for us is Saturday morning to midday. Minor to moderate coastal flooding, erosion, rip currents, pounding surf. Cape Cod Bay, the outer Cape and Nantucket will see the worst conditions. The wind will peak Friday night into Saturday, late morning to midday. Gust to 65 miles per hour on the Cape and Islands. 45 miles per hour at the coast through the north and south shore, and the city could see a few gusts around 40. Pockets of damage and outages will result. Now, in terms of rain, it's one to two inches on the Cape Friday night into Saturday afternoon, but really not much for the rest of us, just damp and raw Saturday morning in particular. And Danielle Noyce says eastern Maine and Nova Scotia will bear the brunt of the blow. By Sunday, it'll be sunny with highs in the 70s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the International Institute of New England, helping respond to the state of emergency in Massachusetts by supporting refugees and immigrants. IINE.org. Automakers and their workers spent this week nearing a strike deadline. They're still not willing to agree on the kinds of raise that will make up for inflation on top of decades of falling wages. We have an update after the deadline passes tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. It's time now for another conversation about the different ways we find meaning in the world with our colleague, Rachel Martin. It's part of her series called Enlighten Me. I want you to think about the last time you fell in love with a novel. Maybe you read it with a pen in hand because there were all these sentences you wanted to underline because they made you think about something in a new way, something in your own life. And you scribbled bits of revelation in the margins in shorthand that only you could understand. And page after page, there are so many of these underlined bits and notes. You've got no choice but to return to that same book again and again to remind yourself what it feels like to be awake to new ideas and possibilities. Does that practice become a spiritual ritual in some way? Does the book itself become sacred? Author Vanessa Zoltan thinks so. Vanessa is many things, a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, a podcast host, a hospital chaplain, a Jew by heritage, an atheist by choice. I talked to her about her memoir called Praying with Jane Eyre, Reflections on Reading as a Sacred Practice, a practice that started with an experiment. We started sort of a Bible study with Jane Eyre. We got together every week. And it's different from a book club in that you're trying to learn from the book, not about the book. Hmm. And you are like actively asking the book questions about your own life, right? Just like you would with Torah, right? Like hmm. what does the creation story tell us about climate change today? What does, you know, Jane's relationship with her aunt tell us about toxic relationships today in my life? Yeah. But it was amazing. It was four women who I'd never met before, and they were all so game to jump in on what Simone Bay calls experimental certainty, right? It was like we were playing. I was like, well, let's just pretend while we're together that this is a sacred book. We're just going to pretend it's sacred. 
and that nothing yeah. in it here is an accident. But that's a really interesting word. Why did you have to pretend? Couldn't you just say that it was sacred? I mean, uh, yes, but there are like traditional ideas of what a sacred text is, right? And that there's like a body of priests that sort of decide it and right and I guess but isn't this the whole rub like what is sacred yeah. isn't it just because we decide to make something sacred and hold it in that way and with that reverence and that we imbue it with meaning yeah I think I only knew that later mm. I like I don't want to insult anyone I admire religious people and yeah. like not in a patronizing way like I genuinely admire a lot of religious people and so I take seriously their commitments to their sacred texts and yeah, yeah. the the historic value of that. And um, and it'd be weird to be like, you've got the Bible and I've got Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre, right. Yeah. And like there's just, you know, like more sacrifices have been made protecting the Bible. You know, it's just, yeah. it's different. Yeah. But on a personal level, it's not different, right? Like I don't think I love Jane Eyre less than a devout person loves the Bible. Hmm. The sacred reading practices, like these two that we do the most, Lectio Divina and Pardes, they're like developed practices from from medieval monks and rabbis that are all about like getting you deeper and deeper into a text and paying closer and closer attention, even just to one word. Huh. Um, and these are these are practices that Bible study groups use. We've just adapted them for secular uses, and it's just doing them weekly for almost 10 years now has changed my brain chemistry. How? You know, Lectio Divina, you start by reading the text literally, and then you think allegorically, what other stories does it remind you of? And then you think about yourself and what it reminds you of in your own life. And then you think about what it makes you feel called to mm. and do differently. And so I will read a sentence that that sparkles up at me Um like, I, I'm currently obsessed with Emily Dickinson. And so, right, I am nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? And I'll, you know, and I'll I'll immediately be like, oh, God, what else does that remind me of? You know, what 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 does nobody mean to people? I'm thinking, you know, thinking about everybody in this world who feels isolated. We know that there's an epidemic of isolation and loneliness in this country, especially for adolescents, right? And so I start thinking about that. And then I also immediately start thinking about moments like that in my own life and therefore treating my life and my memories as sacred in conversation with Emily Dickinson and then you know wonder what that should make me feel called to and does that mean I should text my stepdaughter just telling her I love her for no reason mm. right and like a poem can very quickly just go through my head into action um it, it has, like, really changed the way that I read. You write that you are committed to resisting finding meaning in life other than the meaning that we create. But with yeah. literature, you try to drown yourself in meaning. Why not treat life more like literature? Um, I think it's okay for me to treat my own life like that. I think it's really dangerous to make meaning of other people's lives, mm. including our 
partners and parents and, um, you know, Virginia Woolf often wrote about how we're unknowable to ourselves, let alone to one another. Mm-hmm. And I think that trying too hard to make meaning of other people's actions actually erases the complexity of their actions. That's hard. Uh, I mean, don't we just do that oh, all yeah. the time? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's impossible. But, right, like in theory, that's a chaplain's job, right? Is to sit not in judgment, to have the person. To offer sanctuary to the person who's just committed the sin and is in the midst of self-loathing and yeah. say, I still love you, right? And so if this is like part of my commitment in chaplaincy is to be able to sit with someone in their full humanity and not make a story about them, huh. but to just witness them, I but, um, I have to build that capacity. But then, But then that's totally the opposite of what you do with books and with literature i mean you're dissecting every line every word trying to like squeeze out every bit of meaning from those words yeah because nobody gets hurt and i i think that looking closely at literature and doing that in conversation with literature gives me a a location to reflect on Mm -hmm. but i think it's i think it's dangerous when we do that to each other the book is called praying with jane eyre Reflections on Reading as a Sacred Practice by Vanessa Soltan. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Thank you, Rachel. And you can find past conversations from Rachel Martin's Enlighten Me series on NPR.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from 20th Century Studios, presenting A Haunting in Venice. From the world of Agatha Christie comes a supernatural thriller. Rated PG-13, only in theaters Friday. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The United Auto Workers and the Detroit automakers have just hours to reach tentative deals before the union will begin targeted strikes. General Motors has upped its wage increase offer in an effort to stave off the strikes. It's Thursday, September 14th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
Good evening, I'm Garo Hagopian, in for Lisa Mullins. Ukraine is waging a big military offensive against Russia, but is making limited progress, and this raises a difficult question. When this offensive reaches its limits, which it will probably do in a couple of months when it gets muddy, what do we do then? Hunter Biden has been indicted on felony gun charges weeks after a plea deal struck between President Biden's son and prosecutors fell apart. The Red Sox are parting ways with their chief baseball officer, Heim Bloom. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Hunter Biden has been indicted on felony gun charges weeks after a plea deal struck between President Biden's son and prosecutors fell apart. NPR's Amanda Bastille reports it sets the stage for a possible criminal trial in the middle of the 2024 election. President Biden's son was charged with making false statements when purchasing a firearm and illegal gun possession. Earlier this year, Hunter Biden tried to enter a plea deal under which he agreed to enter a pre-trial diversion agreement that allows him to avoid prosecution for the gun charges. Separately, he pleaded guilty to two misdemeanor offenses related to his filing for federal income taxes. But that deal fell apart in July when the judge in the case said she could not accept the plea deal. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News. Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin says it will resume abortion services in Milwaukee and Madison. As Bridget Bowden of Wisconsin Public Radio reports, the organization immediately stopped providing abortions after the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision. The abrupt stoppage was based on a state law first written in 1849 that was never taken off the books. Now, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin says a county court judge's order from July clears the way to perform abortions because it says the law applies to assault and battery that kills a fetus, not consensual abortion. The organization's legal advocacy director, Michelle Velasquez, says they intend to continue performing abortions until a court rules that they can't. Unless or until there's an adverse decision, whether it be from this court or another court that may hear this case, we would continue to provide services until uh, or unless such time there's a ruling. Abortion appointments at Wisconsin Planned Parenthoods will begin next Monday. For NPR News, I'm Bridget Bowden in Madison. The State Department is condemning Russia's decision to expel two U.S. diplomats, and Washington says it will respond, though as NPR's Michelle Kalman reports, it didn't say when. Two U.S. embassy employees have been declared persona non grata. They're accused of maintaining contact with Robert Shonoff, a former employee of the U.S. consulate in Vladivostok, who's on trial for providing information to the U.S. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller calls the case and the expulsion wholly unwarranted. Yet again, Russia has chosen confrontation and escalation over constructive diplomatic engagement. It continues to harass employees of our embassy just as it continues to intimidate its own citizens. Miller is also announcing a raft of new sanctions on 150 businesses and individuals in several countries accused of aiding Russia's war against Ukraine. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Americans increased their spending last month in part due to an uptick in the cost of gasoline. Retail sales rose six-tenths of a percent. The Dow is up 331 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. Cape Cod, the islands, and the Gloucester area are expected to bear the brunt of Hurricane Lee. National Weather Service meteorologist Frank Nocera says the storm is expected to pass about 100 to 150 miles east of Cape Cod. 
The strongest winds and rainfall will occur Friday night into Saturday. Strongest winds across Cape Cod and Nantucket and maybe even the Cape Ann area of 50 to 60 miles per hour. He says there could be some minor beach erosion. Utility companies are urging people along the coast to prepare for outages. National Grid Vice President Bill Malee says 800 tree and line crews are ready to deal with Lee. We are preparing for flooding and strong winds, which could damage our infrastructure. We're also concerned uh, that the ground is wet and saturated and the trees still have all the leaves on them. And the combination of those two things is ripe for fallen trees. National Grid covers much of Cape Ann, Nantucket, and part of the South Shore. Eversource coverage includes the South Coast, Cape Cod, and Martha's Vineyard. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is going to end its long-standing partnership with Brigham and Women's Hospital and team up instead with Beth Israel Deaconess. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey reports Dana-Farber is planning to build its own cancer hospital in Boston's Longwood Medical Area. Right now, Dana-Farber offers outpatient treatment, like chemotherapy. When patients need to be admitted, they go to neighboring Brigham and Women's. Dana-Farber's chief executive, Dr. Lori Glimter, says she wants this to change. Our patients are sick and they need to have the best physical environment to make them as comfortable as we can. A brand new cancer center that we are controlling will allow us to give them the very best patient care. Dana-Farber leaders also say in the future, they'll work with Beth Israel on cancer care. Both plans need state approval. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. The Red Sox this afternoon fired Chief Baseball Officer Heim Bloom. Red Sox principal owner John Henry says the move signals a new direction for the club. The Sox have finished last in the American League East twice since Bloom was hired in 2019. They're now tied with the Yankees for last place in the division this season. And the Red Sox host the Yankees at 7.15 tonight, the second of a day-night doubleheader. Nick Robertson on the mound. The Sox swept the first game of the series, 5-0. We'll have increasing clouds tonight, low 57 degrees, overcast and breezy tomorrow with a high of 70. Right now in Boston, sunny skies and 74 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In a moment, we'll hear NASA's latest plan on how to contribute to the science of UFOs. But first... President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, has been indicted on felony gun charges. This comes weeks after a plea deal with prosecutors fell apart. The charges possibly set the stage for yet another high-profile criminal trial in the middle of the 2024 election. Joining us now to discuss these developments is NPR reporter Jimena Bustillo. Hey, Jimena. Hey there. Okay, first, what exactly is Hunter Biden being charged with today? Well, he's being charged with making knowingly false written claims that he was not an unlawful user or addicted to any stimulant, narcotic drug, or other controlled substance, and lying to federal to a federally licensed gun dealer when purchasing a firearm. There's another charge for illegal possession of a firearm, and this is connected with a gun he purchased in 2018. Earlier this summer, Biden had agreed to enter a plea deal that would have allowed him to avoid prosecution on these gun charges. Mm-hmm. 
Separately, as a part of the plea deal, he agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor offenses related to his filing of federal income taxes. Okay, and then remind us what happened to that plea deal. Well, the plea deal fell apart, which is how we got here today. Last month, a federal judge in Delaware questioned the terms of the deal, specifically whether it conveyed a kind of broad immunity to Hunter Biden over his business dealings and foreign lobbying. So prosecutors said no, and lawyers for Hunter Biden said yes, and there was no meeting of the minds. Prosecutors then said that the two sides remained at an impasse and that there was no plea deal. David Weiss, the special counsel in this case, has been investigating the president's son since 2019, when he was appointed by then-President Trump as U.S. attorney from Delaware. Merrick Garland, the current attorney general, named him special counsel in August. The difference now is that as special counsel, he will write a report explaining his decisions about charging people or declining to charge people, and he's going to operate outside of the day-to-day supervision from the Justice Department leaders. But they can override his decision if they think that they're inappropriate. Right. Okay, so what kind of reaction are you seeing so far to all of this? Well, so far, a little bit. The White House is declining to comment. They referred reporters to the Justice Department and Hunter Biden's personal legal representatives and noted that this is an independent investigation. Abby Lowell, Hunter Biden's attorney, accused Weiss of, quote, bending to political pressure from Republicans. We believe these charges are barred by the agreement the prosecutors made with Mr. Biden and recent rulings by several federal courts that the statute is unconstitutional and the facts that he did not violate the law. And we plan to demonstrate all of that in court. Lowell said that in a statement. Meanwhile, former President Trump took to his social media platform, Truth Social, to argue Democrats opened what he called a proverbial Pandora's box, though he himself notes that these charges don't implicate the sitting president. Well, let me ask you this, Jimena, because all of this is coming the same week that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Mm -hmm. How much are these two things connected? Well, they're not directly connected. House Republicans have long maintained that Hunter Biden benefited from foreign companies because of his father. They alleged this week in that impeachment inquiry that the president lied to, quote, the American people about his own knowledge of his family's foreign business dealings. But Republicans have not proven any connection between Hunter Biden's business dealings and President Biden. Devin Archer, a former business associate of Hunter Biden's, did tell a House committee recently that then-Vice President Biden sent greetings when Hunter hosted conference calls with clients and stopped by briefly at business dinners. But Archer conceded that he did not have any evidence that then-Vice President Biden received any direct financial benefit as a result of these interactions. Although unrelated, these charges do have political implications. Any Hunter Biden trial is likely to be in the middle of an election campaign where his father is hoping to get reelected. And they give Republicans something to point to as their own likely standard bearer, Donald Trump, is facing his own legal troubles and trials during the campaign. That is NPR's Jimena Bustillo. Thank you, Jimena. Thank you. Automakers and the Auto Workers Union have just hours left to reach a deal before the union plans to begin targeted strikes. We do know auto workers are getting sizable raises. We still don't know how much. And the fate of some of the other union demands is still up in the air. NPR's Camila Dominoski is in Detroit. She joins us now from there. Hey there, Camila. Hi, Mary Louise. Hey, uh, first off, tell me exactly where you are in Detroit. 
Yeah, I'm at the Detroit Auto Show right now. You might be able to hear some electric vehicles whipping around on an indoor track in here. Okay. This show this year has been completely overshadowed by these talks that are happening. You know, you have executives who've been trying to talk about these new vehicles coming out, and all the reporters here just keep asking them about these union talks. Yeah, okay. And so where do the union talks stand with the clocks ticking away? Tick-tock, tick-tock. So midnight is the deadline. GM and Ford say that they have put offers on the table on pay and benefits that the companies call historic. I'm waiting to hear back from Stellantis. The union says that these offers are simply not good enough, given the huge profits that companies have been making lately and the big pay hikes that they gave their CEOs. Um, on the company side, last night here at the show, Jim Farley, he's the CEO of Ford, and he expressed frustration with what he saw as the union not responding to the company's offers. Here's what he said. We still have time left. We have time left, but it's hard to negotiate when you don't get any feedback back. And you know, there's not much time left, right? Ford sources today said they were expecting talks to be sort of fast and furious, if you'll forgive a car pun, flying back and forth <laughs> offers today, but they just haven't been that busy. I should note, the union previously accused the companies of stalling for weeks on sort of getting to the nitty gritty. So there's frustration on both sides. Okay, frustration on both sides, but on the substance, do we know how far apart they remain? Yeah, automakers have moved on wages. They're now offering 20% increases, we saw from GM and Ford. And the companies have put cost of living protections that are tied to inflation on the table. That's really a big win for the union. Lots of people thought they weren't going to be able to get that. Uh, newer hires will also be able to get maximum pay a lot faster under the company proposals at this point. But Mary Louise, there are some things that the union used to have, things the union would really like to get back, things like pensions instead of 401ks, and pay for workers even if their plant is shut down. And on those things, the automakers are not budging at all. They say they're simply too expensive and they couldn't compete, and the union, meanwhile, says they're really important. Okay, so sounds like we may well be looking at a strike. What do we know about mm -hmm. what form that might take, what it'll look like? Yeah, UAW President Sean Payne says they could strike all three companies at once, like he said all along. That would be really unusual. At the same time, this is not going to be the mega strike that many people had sort of been bracing for. We're not going to see 150,000-ish members all walk out on Friday. The, the union is instead going to start with a few plants and then grow from there. That is odd. That's not how most strikes happen today. But historian Aline DeVault says it's actually a throwback to the 30s. It's sort of a variation on how they ran their first really huge strike against General Motors in 1937 when they started in one plant and then another plant would join and then another plant would join. And then another plant and then another plant. You know, companies also have strike plans. Ford has opened a line of credit. They've trained salaried workers to take shifts in plants that send out parts. They are bracing. All right, and it sounds like uh, just like those electric cars behind you, we're racing up against this deadline hours away. That's right. 10 o'clock, uh, shortly before the deadline, they're going to announce where the strikes will happen. Uh, but at midnight, the strikes will kick off. And here's Camila Dominoski at the Detroit Auto Show. Thanks, Camila. Thanks, Mary Louise. 
unidentified flying objects, or UFOs, have recently gotten more attention from Congress and the Department of Defense, and now from NASA. Advisors to the space agency think it should play a, quote, prominent role in studying odd sightings. And as NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports, NASA has seized on that idea, appointing its first-ever chief of UFO research. For decades, NASA has looked for signs of alien life out in the planets and the moons of our solar system and beyond. But possible aliens closer to home, like UFOs? That hasn't really been NASA's thing. Bill Nelson wants to change that. He's the agency's administrator. We, NASA, have taken for the first time concrete action to seriously look into UAP. UAP is the preferred acronym these days for Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena. Last year, NASA brought together 16 outside experts, asking them to assess what unclassified data is available and how NASA could contribute. Now that group has issued a report, Nelson and other officials released its findings at a press briefing. The NASA independent study team did not find any evidence that UAP have an extraterrestrial origin. But we don't know what these UAP are. Most sightings are mundane objects, drones, weather balloons, but some are unexplained. Still, there's usually very limited information. The new report lays out a roadmap for how NASA can leverage its observing instruments and scientific expertise to help the government collect data and study it with more rigor, plus openness. Nelson said if NASA found evidence that a sighting was tied to a non-human intelligence. You bet your boots. Uh, we will say that. He announced that NASA has created a new position its first director of UAP research. But officials refuse to say who is filling that role. Dan Evans is with NASA's Science Mission Directorate. He says members of the UAP study team got harassed and threatened. That's in part why we are not splashing the name of our new director out there, um, because science needs to be free. UFOs can inspire strong feelings. NASA officials say they hope more science will lead to less sensationalism. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. And you are listening to All Things Considered. It's Garo Hagopian. Thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Catch us, too, at WBUR.org and on the WBUR app. Coming right up, meteorologist Danielle Noyce with a live update on what we can expect from Hurricane Lee and when. A good day on Wall Street. The Dow was up 332 points, the S&P 500 up 38, and the Nasdaq up 112. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen. With a goal of delivering holiday catering, everyone will keep talking about FreshCityKitchen.com. There's a tropical storm warning up for the Massachusetts coast as Hurricane Lee approaches, with Cape Cod and the islands likely to be the main targets. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce joins us live now. Hi, Danielle. Hey, Garo. Hi. Where is Lee now, and when's it coming here? So Lee is about 660 miles south of Nantucket right now. It's still a Category 1, 85-mile-per-hour storm, so... If you know you haven't tuned in since like yesterday, it has shown some you know gradual weakening, and I do expect that trend to continue. It's also picked up a little forward speed, so it's zipping along a little quicker. It's moving to the north at about 15 miles per hour right now. And uh, what can we expect, by the way, of the uh, biggest impacts? Is this going to be mainly a rain event, a wind event? You know what? This is going to be a Cape Cod event. Above? Yeah. 
a Cape Cod event mainly. You know, here's what I, the big takeaway from this. Lee is not going to hit us directly. Lee's going to be several hundred miles to our east. So if you live along the immediate coastline of Cape Ann, the South Shore, but especially Cape Cod and the islands, that this is a storm for you, especially the main coastline. Everyone else, I actually wouldn't be surprised, Garo, if we have some sun out, like Saturday afternoon inland. Um, you know, if Boston gets a few sprinkles, maybe a brief gusty wind. So this is not, uh, you know, an impactful event by any means. But at the coastline, the wave action, you know, the rip currents, the beach erosion will be significant. And there'll be some minor to perhaps moderate pockets of coastal flooding, especially in Cape Cod Bay, because the wind is going to be out of the north and that's going to pile up the water in Cape Cod Bay for the Saturday midday high tide. All right. That's WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Thanks for your time. We'll keep an eye on this uh, throughout the evening and all day tomorrow and through the weekend here on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Historic New England, hosting its 2023 summit in Providence, Rhode Island, bringing together regional and national leaders to share ideas and solutions to strengthen the livability and vitality of communities across New England. Be part of the conversation. Learn more at summit.historicnewengland.org. On a Thursday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Ukraine is waging its biggest military offensive yet in the war against Russia, but it's making only limited progress. This raises a difficult question. Should the U.S. and its allies provide Ukraine with even more powerful weapons or try to lay the groundwork for a negotiated settlement or both? NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie has our story. When Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is asked if he should negotiate with Russian leader Vladimir Putin, he's blunt. Here's what he recently told CNN. When you want to have compromises or dialogue with somebody, you can't do it with a liar. Zelensky and many Ukrainians are quick to note that Moscow has dominated or attempted to dominate Ukraine for generations. Their intent is to drive out all Russian troops, estimated at 200,000 or more, even if it means a protracted war. Yet the front lines on the battlefield today have changed only marginally this year, despite months of heavy fighting. When this offensive reaches its limits, which it will probably do in a couple of months when it gets muddy, what do we do then? Charles Kupchin is a former diplomat and national security official. He was part of a small, unofficial group that met quietly this year with Russian officials, including Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. He argues the U.S. approach should be two-pronged, bolster Ukraine's military, as it's doing, and also prepare for possible negotiations. Ukraine is suffering terrible loss of life. And as a consequence, uh, one has to ask, might Ukraine be better off trying to get a ceasefire and beginning the process of rebuilding? Yet the spotlight is currently on Ukraine's offensive in the south and east of the country. The Ukrainians have made some advances since launching it in June, a few miles here, a few miles there, but they haven't achieved a major breakthrough. Ben Hodges is a former U.S. Army general who helped train Ukrainian forces. He says the Ukrainians are inflicting damage on Russian forces behind the front lines, something that gets only limited attention. I mean, every time a train is stopped or a, a truck is uh, destroyed or a bridge is taken out, that makes it that much harder to resupply uh, Russian troops and Russian artillery. And so the Ukrainian counteroffensive is putting enormous pressure 
on the Russians. He favors additional weapons for Ukraine, including ATACMS, a U.S. missile with a range of nearly 200 miles. The Biden administration, which is considering adding ATACMS to Ukraine's arsenal, has provided or pledged more than $100 billion in overall assistance since early last year and is now seeking another $24 billion. Most members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats, have supported such aid. But opposition is growing. Former President Donald Trump, as well as other Republican presidential candidates, are among the critics. Hodges supports the additional aid, but says the Biden administration should define more clearly what success in Ukraine would look like. We run the risk of losing some of this, what is so far, very strong effective bipartisan support. And I I think that's exactly what the Kremlin is hoping for, is that this support will eventually fall away. Elbridge Colby, a former Pentagon official, supports U.S. help for Ukraine, though he thinks Europe should be in the lead. His main concern is that a long-running war in Ukraine diverts U.S. attention from China and a possible invasion of Taiwan, which he considers much more important. There's always a trade-off. You may not acknowledge it or know exactly where it is, but it's going to come. My argument has been that Europe has really got to take the leading role there. Uh, because of the urgency of the threat in the Pacific. Meanwhile, neither the Russians nor Ukrainians are expressing interest in negotiations. Russia claims four Ukrainian regions as permanent Russian territory. Ukraine says it will not give up any land. Charles Kupchin acknowledges it would be difficult to launch talks and harder still to reach agreement. But he says it's important to be ready if and when an opportunity arises. Because it requires preparation and it needs to be on the shelf if, in fact, both Kiev and Moscow arrive at the conclusion that it's worth talking. For now, the focus is still on the fighting. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. A David and Goliath story torn from the internet. In 2021, amateur stock investors made a lot of money and plunged hedge funds into disarray in what was known as the GameStop short squeeze. Critic Bob Mondello says he did not follow the story at the time, but that the new movie comedy, Dumb Money, makes it crystal clear and more fun than you might think possible. We meet Roaring Kitty a bit after we meet Keith Gill, though technically they're the same person. Gill's a 30-something married guy with a baby who works for a life insurance company, but in his basement as Roaring Kitty, he dons a capped t-shirt and a red headband to talk to his YouTube and Reddit followers. Yo, what up, everybody? Roaring Kitty here. I'm going to pick a stock and talk about why I think it's interesting, and that stock is GameStop. I love this guy. That is not an uncommon reaction. Most of Roaring Kitty's followers love him, at least partly because he's making them a lot of money. If he's in, I'm in. If he's in, I'm in. 70,000 people have watched this video. Roaring Kitty, I love you! He took his entire life savings, $53,000, and put it into GameStop, a chain of brick-and-mortar stores catering to gamers. And in his video stream, he's tracking how his purchase is doing in real time. There are digital tables and graphs on the wall behind him, and as other 
folks follow his lead, the stock's been going up. GameStop, those shares not stopping. This initially amuses the hedge fund guys who've been betting against GameStop, that is, selling short. I think they think it's a good investment. Dumb money, man. Happy to take it. By betting against GameStop, the hedge funds are essentially giving it a push off a financial cliff. But if it doesn't fail, they're in trouble. And judging from news reports, they're in trouble. I will tell you, I've never seen anything like it. It's the craziest I think I've ever seen. Director Craig Gillespie is good at keeping the pace snappy while juggling a lot of narrative streams at once. There's Paul Dano's appealingly geeky Keith Gill and Shailene Woodley as his quietly astonished wife. How much did we make today? Five million. And yesterday? Four million. Babe. Yeah. We're like really rich. Also a hilariously profane Pete Davidson as Gill's slacker brother. What are you gonna do? Get a Ferrari? What the Oh, language. The baby's here. We meet a cross-section of Gil's followers. When they hit, I'm going to buy you a mansion. Let's drink to that. And we also watch the hedge fund guys as they panic, with Seth Rogen doing the lion's share of the panicking. How much did we lose today? A billion. And yesterday? A billion. Do you have a minute? I, uh... Um. Now, it may occur to you at some point that what all these folks are doing is essentially gambling. Dumb and dumber money, right? A lot of small bettors going all in, hoping to bring down what amounts to the Wall Street casino. It's nice that for a while, little guys were able to outdistance billionaires, but as entertaining as dumb money is, it's not exactly a ringing endorsement of the American dream. In a few sentences on screen at the very end, the filmmakers make a pitch for the notion that the success of all that dumb money money has changed Wall Street practices for good. A lovely thought, and if you believe it, have I got a stock for you. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G Network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And the Boston Globe's Globe Summit 2023. Today's innovators, tomorrow's leaders. Virtually or in person at WBUR's City Space, September 19th through 21st. The third annual event features speakers Rain Wilson, Devin McCourty, Alex Cora, Keith Lockhart, and more. Open to the public. Registration at globe.com summit.